welcome our listeners to another episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Located in New York City, I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe Partners and Community Ambassador for Energy Central. Joining me is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager for Energy Central and located in Orlando, Florida. Matt, how are you doing today? Hi, Jason. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And I know we have an important guest on the way, and I'm excited to learn from him. That's right. Uh, Matt, you know, you're approaching 5 p.m. Eastern time, and that means you're about to hit peak energy use. Are you adjusting your power use as a result? You know, I, I know that I probably should, and I do reduce power when I can, but during the summers in Florida, it's, it's pretty tough sometimes. <laughs> well, as utilities modernize, we see concepts such as time of use rates become more popular. That is, the rate per kilowatt hour at, say, 9 a.m. may be different than, say, at 2 p.m. or even at 9 p.m. The principle of time of use rates is meant to serve the objectives of both the utility and the customer. So, Matt, it's likely you're on the time of use rate plan and you may not even know it. I'll make a note to uh, reach out to my utility provider to find out. (laughs) Well, to help us understand a little bit more about the time of use rates and why utilities are adopting such programs is James Riley. James has been an Energy Central member since 2014 and is now a partner at Appos Advisors where he advises technology and service providers to the industry on their product and go-to-market strategies. Or as he prefers to say it, help those companies help utilities as they seek to address the challenges and opportunities associated with an industry and transformation. Before we dive into the forward-looking and quickly developing topic, we want to first thank our sponsors who make this podcast possible. To West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics such as aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployments, and industry disruptors like DERs and cybersecurity. To ESRI, an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, WebGIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant Research, a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation. And to Hancock Software, streamline commercial and residential energy efficiency retrofits. Their customers deliver more than double the number of retrofit projects with the same energy engineering staff. Now let's bring on our guest, James Riley. James, it is a pleasure to have you on today's episode of The Power Perspectives. Well, thank you for having me, Jason. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. James, you live in California. And as we know, in mid-August, the entire region was experiencing a suffocating heat wave. Death Valley reported the highest temperatures recorded on Earth, a staggering 130 degrees Fahrenheit. So as a result, California was desperate for more power. And although we joked at the top of the show for Matt to adjust his AC to save power, this is exactly what all residents of the Golden State were asked to do as a statewide flex alert was issued during the hours of 2 and 9 p.m. On some days, Queso forecasted insufficient power at around 5 p.m. and on a number of days that rolling blackouts occurred. So as a resident of California and as a utility customer, tell me about your experience during this time period. It would have been pretty hard to miss the heat wave, to be honest. Working from home, as I guess many of us are right now, 
certainly made me more conscious of my uh, electric usage behaviour and what I might be able to do to avoid the chances of experience a blackout during the heat wave. I know I received several emails from my electric utility, emails asking me to conserve energy, stressing the key conservation hours of between 4 and 9 p.m., and providing recommendations as to how to save energy, such as setting my AC thermostat to 78 degrees, avoiding the use of large appliances, but also things like switching off unnecessary lights. Did a little bit of digging and looked across not only my own utilities website, but the websites of all three investor-owned utilities in California. And the messaging was remarkably consistent. The Flex Alert, which was issued at the state level, was front and center, basically saying rolling blackouts could occur at any time, but particularly in the afternoon hours. And all were providing energy conservation tips and tricks for customers to follow to help reduce peak demand and try and avoid those rolling blackouts. I have to say, kind of reflecting on the tips that were being suggested, that they were the same tips and tricks that utilities have been advocating ever since California introduced time of use pricing and a statewide 4 to 9 p.m. window. James, what do you think were the major factors that contributed to the situation and how might this be mitigated in the future? Right. Oh, well, gosh, there seem to be a lot of opinions as to why it happened. And we talk about spinning up power generation quickly. I think the blame game ramped up even faster with fingers being pointed in multiple directions. One thing that everybody can agree on is that the heart of the problem was that record-breaking heat wave. But really, that was probably not the only factor. Maybe Queso failed to fully anticipate just how bad the heat wave was going to get and simply hadn't procured and made available enough power. Maybe Queso also didn't anticipate the heat wave would affect neighboring states such as Arizona and Nevada. I don't know if you know, but California sources about a third of its energy from other states. And with the heat wave hitting those neighboring states, they were holding on to their power. And extra power for California simply wasn't available. You know, maybe California's mandate to get to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2045 and the fact that the state is already running on 33% renewables has made the state more susceptible to demand shortages during heat waves. And maybe that was exacerbated when one of the natural gas peaker plants, plants that are designed to go online rapidly in the event of a power supply shortage, that make up dispatchable generation in California, failed to come online when called upon. Hard to say exactly what caused the rolling blackouts. It will not be a simple problem to solve either. Um, Certainly mitigation in the future will likely require effort on at least three fronts. And I mentioned dispatchable generation, the ability to switch online generation plants at short notice to cover shortfalls. So, you know, one thing would be to ensure that sufficient functioning dispatchable generation is available, particularly in the hours of 4 to 9 p.m. when California experiences what's called the duck curve, when the renewable sources of energy, particularly solar, drop off as the sun starts to go down. But demand tends to stay relatively level. And so there's that peak demand for non-renewable sources. Another area is probably ongoing investment in energy storage capacity. California overgenerates solar power during the middle of the day. Energy storage capacity could time shift that overgeneration and make it available as the sun starts to go down and the pinch point occurs. The third course of action is around energy demand, energy demand management. So, of course, we can all make efforts to increase energy efficiency, but deploying and optimizing pricing models like time of use rates that encourage customers to shift usage off peak and the implementation of demand response programs, which we'll touch on a little bit later, I think, that further incentivize customers to reduce their use during those peak times 
all three of those are likely to be needed in order to avoid the situation in the future. With hindsight, and hindsight being a wonderful thing and all, of course there was no time at short notice to add extra dispatchable generation or energy storage, but those are longer term measures that can protect from this kind of situation in the future. In this event, the only option was energy demand management and to rely on customers heeding the call from the utilities to reduce demand during the peak period. Hence the emails that I received from my utility, hence the advice that was front and center on all three of the big IOU websites. And you know what? Customers really did heed the call. They did reduce demand. And the reason that after the initial set of rolling blackouts, there were no future ones was largely because customers responded. I was mulling over this the other day, and I think my takeaway, at the risk of stating the obvious, is customers will actually reduce their use a little in response to the higher prices that TOU has in the peak periods. But what we saw in the heat wave is when customers are fearful that the power might go out and the implications of that, losing their air conditioning, I'll say jokingly losing Netflix, something we've all become reliant upon in the heat wave, and of course, COVID-19 and the stay-at-home orders. But the thought of losing power altogether is a much stronger incentive for customers to change their behavior and shift their use away from the peak hours. And it worked, and customers did respond. And as a state, we avoided further future blackouts. James, you mentioned the coronavirus. Let's talk a little bit more about that. It's just another layer of complexity to the entire situation. How does that influence or change demand? And do you think those changes could have a longer lasting impact? Yeah, I'm a little bit of a geek. So I went and dug out the numbers. And uh, Queso, like all the other independent system operators, um, are very transparent in terms of the data they provide on actual demand in the marketplace, as well as the ability to do what's called backcasting and strip out the effects of temperature to really understand what impact COVID-19 had. The stay-at-home order in California was issued, I think, on March the 20th. And in the first full week following that order being put in place, the average weekday demand was down by about 2.4%. It actually went down 5% during the peak hours. Average weekend demand wasn't down as much because, of course, the the change in consumer patterns uh, where customers were working from home uh, during the week had a profound effect. But the weekend, everybody was home as they would be anyway. And average demand was down 1.1% and only down 1.9% during the peak hours. In other words, COVID-19 and the stay-at-home order had the impact that demand fell, especially during the weekday peak hours. But what happened as the weather started to get a bit hotter here in California? In June, average demand in peak hours actually increased 0.6% at 8pm. In July, this rose to 1.7%. So my assumption is with everybody at home, with temperatures rising, more use of air conditioning at home, we actually saw increased demand as a result of COVID-19. The reductions that we saw in demand in March, April and May from COVID-19 disappeared and then went into reverse as the temperatures rose. And of course, given the heat wave, I have to believe that this was even worse. So to come back to your question, did did COVID-19 contribute? I think it did. Will it have a lasting impact? It certainly looks that way if there's a permanent and significant shift to working from home. And my hypothesis going forward is, Certainly in California, average demand will drop in the cooler months of the year as a result of people working from home. But when the temperatures rise, what we'll see is an increase in average demand, particularly in the peak period and particularly in the hottest months of the year. 
James, another question I had on this topic regarding demand and the COVID-19 situation, you mentioned there might be longer term impacts, but do you think there are any sort of unique conditions of the present time that almost serve as a valuable test case or natural experiment of sorts? What what are utilities able to learn from what's going on when it comes to demand and demand management now that people are largely shifting where and when they're consuming energy? I think if you introduce a change in lifestyle or introduces perhaps the wrong way of describing it, if a change in lifestyle is mandated or necessary for public health reasons, you will see changes in usage behaviour and utilities have to respond to that as best they can. And that is not always easy. In fact, it's a very difficult thing to do. I know anecdotally, the spike in demand as people used to wake up early in the morning to get ready and go to work, that actually shifted by about an hour, which you you can assume is people aren't getting up as early because they don't have to commute. What we've learned as a result of this is when things change people's way of lives, consumption and demand patterns change, and utilities have to have some, let's call it, contingency to be able to deal with that, especially if it happens at short notice like it did with COVID-19. You recently authored a piece for Energy Central entitled The Times They Are Changing, in which you describe your own transition to a time of use rate and the increasing complexity of rates being offered to the customers. How are time of use rates different than the traditional rate models used by utilities? Well, first of all, I hope you like the Bob Dylan reference in the title of that article. Um, Let's talk about traditional rate models and traditional rate models, i.e. tiered pricing. The price you pay for every kilowatt hour that you consume really depends on your cumulative consumption within your billing period. What does that mean? It means the consumption tiers are typically based upon a baseline, which utilities use as a proxy for, let's call it deemed reasonable use, given your climate zone that you're in, given the type of property that you're living in. Prior to my move to a time of use rate, I was on a tiered rate. I paid one price for all my consumption of 130% of my baseline, a more expensive price for any consumption between 131 and 400% of my baseline, and then a really super expensive price if my consumption went above 400% of my baseline, something that locally here is referred to as a high usage charge. So I was very much incented to limit my consumption or I would pay more money. It didn't in any way try to change my behavior other than the more you consume, the more you pay, the more you consume, the higher the rate that you'll price that you pay per kilowatt hour. Okay, but as the shift towards renewable energy sources continue, many in the industry worry about being able to provide power to customers when demand is at peak. So how can these rates and other pricing mechanisms improve to ensure the lights stay on when demand is at its highest? Yeah, great question. As I said, a tiered rate encourages me to use less. What a tiered rate doesn't do is encourage me to use less at certain times of the day, i.e. when demand in the market typically peaks. This is what time of use rates are designed to do. It matters not just how much I use on my time of use rate, but also when I use it. And I pay substantially more, as does every other customer on time of use rates, for each kilowatt hour I consume during the peak hours of 4 to 9 p.m. than I do at other times. I can, of course, therefore save money by shifting my usage to off-peak, and we also have a time-of-use block here called super off-peak. When there's an abundance of electricity available in the state and prices are cheap in the wholesale market, and those savings are passed on to me as a customer if I can move my usage to those times of day. Across California, 
time of use rates are being rolled out to all customers. And this is designed to help flatten the peak of non-renewable demand between 4 and 9 p.m. There are other things that utilities are doing, particularly here in California, in addition to TOU rates, introducing a number of demand response programs, again aimed at reducing peak demand in those hours of 4 till 9 p.m. There's something called critical peak pricing, which is an additional charge levied often between the hours of 2 p.m. and 6 p.m., but on the handful of days when extremely high demand is forecast. And of course, that basically means if you don't reduce the amount of electricity you're consuming, you will pay more. So it's a a disincentive to consume during those peak hours. There are other programs like AC Saver programs where in return for giving the utility the ability to control your thermostat or your AC on those critical days, you can receive an annual bill credit. Another program which is more aimed at the commercial customers that utilities have something called base interruptible programs where businesses can receive a monthly credit for reducing their demand to a predetermined level on days of extremely high forecast demand. What all of those programs have in common, like time of use rates, is they're designed to provide an incentive for customers to reduce their demand on the few days of the year where demand might outstrip supply. Interesting. Well, so utilities are frequently accused of operating solely with their best interests in mind. And as someone who's been working with utilities for many years, how do you view utilities and their commitment to their customers? And does switching towards a time of use rate truly benefit customers? I guess my own experience, uh, having worked in the industry for about the last 15 years, is overwhelmingly utilities try to do the right thing by their customers. Something that, of course, is reinforced by careful governance and regulation. The example I often give here is investor-owned utilities don't make money from each kilowatt hour that you as a customer consume. They're simply not incentivized to get you to consume more and more electricity, and they're not allowed to increase prices without approval from the regulators. Where investor-owned utilities make money is from a rate of return on the capital employed. The investments that they're making in transmission distribution, the investments they're making in smart meters. And and that percentage rate of return they're allowed to make is granted by the regulators. And in the past, I know organizations like JD Power have actually done studies and analyzed and found that there's a very close relationship between customer satisfaction and the rate of return that regulators grant to the investor-owned utilities. In other words, it pays to keep your customers happy. So not only do I see on the ground that utilities are trying to do the right thing, they're financially incented to do the right thing. And they're simply not in the business of trying to make their customers' lives difficult because it makes more profit. If anything, the reverse is true. But do TOU rates really benefit the customer? Um, I think they do. They're a really, they've proven to be thus far an effective part of the kind of energy demand management strategies I talked about earlier. These rates help to loosen the grip of non-renewable energy sources. I'm a big believer in moving towards renewables. I think that's good for the environment. I think it's good for our health. It also could reduce the price of energy for us in the future. So indirectly, one could argue that the introduction of time of use rates that facilitates greater adoption of non-renewables helps us all on a journey towards a clean, reliable, affordable and sustainable energy future. When time of use rates are introduced to existing customers, what do the adoption rates typically look like? And what tactics have you seen utilities deploy to ensure the successful adoption of these rates? There are generally two strategies, which we'll call opt-in and opt-out. An opt-in strategy is where customers are given the chance to move to TOU rates if they want to, 
and they'll only be enrolled if they take action to do so. On the other hand, an opt-out strategy is where all customers will be moved to a TOU rate unless they specifically ask not to be. So the question is, which is the better strategy? There was a study done, I think, back in 2016 by the US Department of Energy, specifically to compare the effectiveness of the opt-in versus opt-out strategies in terms of rates of adoption, peak reduction, and retention once customers have made a decision. I won't go into detail in the statistics because that will bore you, but the data showed that the opt-out strategy whereby everybody is enrolled but given the chance to decide not to be if they if they so deem was by far the most effective at achieving the end goal which is peak reduction for the reasons that we've talked about of course when you opt everybody in and people have to make a decision to opt out adoption rates are much higher you're comparing say 15 20 percent adoption on an opt-in strategy to around about 97 percent adoption on an opt-out because you're enrolling everybody and there's an element of, uh, let's call it inertia in customer behavior. Given everything else, I'll just stay where I am or allow myself to be moved. One other interesting part of that study was, and perhaps not surprisingly, was for utilities who adopted an opt-in, the customers who did choose and proactively move themselves onto a time of use rate showed more behavioral change when they did. So they, in, in effect, reduced their peak demand significantly more on average than the massive customers. But of course, when you've got 97% of your customers moving and everybody changes on average a little bit, that outweighs the 15% of customers moving who change their behavior a lot. So I think what utilities have observed and what this Department of Energy study observed was the opt-out strategy is the most effective. And of course, having made significant investments in the deployment of uh, smart grid infrastructure, which is necessary to support pricing mechanisms like time of use. If you really want to leverage the benefit, it therefore makes sense to adopt the opt-out strategy. I always come back to my own experience. I was part of an opt-out strategy. I received communication from my utility. I was going to be moved on to a time of use rate unless I chose not to. But the way they communicated that to me actually made my decision fairly simple. They forecasted my next 12 months consumption and they showed me what my bill would be if I stayed on my existing rate by what my bill would be compared to what my bill would be on two different time of use rates. And I was actually forecast to save a bit of money on my time of use rate if I moved to it. So I was already convinced at that point. But just in case I wasn't, you know, what my utility have offered to all customers as part of this opt out strategy is if you move to time of use and after 12 months, you would have been better off had you stayed on your old tiered rate. We will refund you the difference. Now, of course, they are also helping and coaching customers, educating customers with the same tips and tricks we've talked about to shift usage away from off peak, which if customers follow will not only flatten the curve and you know, reduce the critical times when supply may be outstripped by demand, but it will also help customers to lower their bill. So my view strongly is I know customers don't like to have change imposed on them, but this is a change I think is good for everybody. There's always the choice to opt out, and about 3% of customers typically do opt out, but 97% move on to time of use rates, and retention rates once on that are in the 80 to 90% range. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, Jason suggested I might be on time of use rate, and I've, I've since checked, <clears throat> and it looks like I'm not. And I'm not because it, I don't think my utility offers it. So 
I'm, I'm wondering if there's any pathway where customers who might want a time of use rate are able to you know, have some sort of collective influence on the utilities to encourage it or, you know, does it always come from within the utility themselves or, you know, what, what goes into the decision about whether or not to offer those rates? In my, in my experience, it's always either the, you know, the governance or the regulators who drive utilities towards time of use rates. A big part and a key enabler for time of use rates is the installation of smart meters. Meters that can record usage in intervals down to 15 minutes, even five minutes. Because the traditional meter, of course, sits at the home. Somebody comes out to read that meter or drives by and picks up a radio signal, and it's done once a month. So you get one block of consumption, which, of course, you can slice into the tiers that I talked about on my tiered rate. But without a smart meter, time of use is impossible. So it may well be that your utility has not yet deployed smart meters. And you, you see that probably more in uh, older, larger cities. I know in New York, I didn't have a water meter in my, my apartment in New York when I lived there. It was an assumed usage per month that I was billed upon. And that's because the infrastructure has been in place a very long time, I think. But let's say that smart meters have been deployed in your area, Matt. It may well be that your utility is adopting an opt-in strategy. So it's reliant upon customers saying, I do want to shift to a time of use rate. And maybe that's something you could do is look at your utilities website, uh, give them a call and ask them if time of use rates are available for you, assuming that you do want to play your part with respect to flattening the curve. I'm having some trouble with this. And the reason being is that, you know, now that we're all working from home and we have certain habits and dependencies, it seems to me that the only practical customer for time of use rates would be those where they really can adjust the usage. And the only practical way I see it is, you know what? I'll plan my driving habits differently. So unless I have an electric vehicle, I'm really having a tough time seeing where I can just adjust my usage of the things that I depend on. Case in point, I looked at the 10K of Con Edison, and in there they reported that customers use, on average, 300 kilowatt hours per month. Okay, that's 300 kilowatt hours. They're not doing anything fancy. They need that 300 kilowatt hours. Now, if you were to throw in an electric vehicle, then there's some flexibility on what they use and what they don't use. So I guess I go back to this time of use rate issue is really beneficial perhaps for, or the biggest impact would be for those that have an EV because that's where it's most dispatchable, I guess, or the most flexible for the customer. Otherwise, I need the air conditioning on. You know, from going from 78 to 76, is that really going to make a big difference? I know that it's hot right now and I need to keep my air conditioning at 76. You want me to move it to 78? Well, you know what? I'll just charge my my car later. So I guess I go back to you, James. Since you joined a time of use program, what are you actually adjusting? Uh, help us understand from a tactical standpoint or practical standpoint, if you will. What is it you're adjusting and changing your usage of that you think is making some kind of a meaningful impact for the utility? Sure. Well, first of all, embarrassingly, I'm I'm a little bit of a Luddite and I don't drive an electric vehicle here in California. Probably shouldn't have shared that with you. Um, you know, as you noted, I am on a time of use rate. And what have I changed? Major appliances. 
I mean, I, I personally have a little bit of a quirky thing going. I'm, I'm lucky I live in the coastal area of San Diego. So my temperatures are moderated. And I'm a big believer in using circulatory fans rather than air conditioning, generally just to save energy and to save money. And ever since I moved into my apartment here about 18 months ago, I, I made myself a bet that I would never use heating or cooling. Now, that's been possible for me. It's been uncomfortable on some of the days when the temperatures have got really high. But I also realise that being in the coastal area, it's a lot easier for me to do that. But if I wasn't in the coastal area, I would have adjusted my thermostat because AC is is an enormous contributor to consumption in the peak hours. The things that I have done, because I kind of skirt around the AC issue, is I don't run my dishwasher in those hours. I don't run my clothes washer and clothes dryer in those hours. So really, I avoid the major appliances within those hours. And I shift. So where whereby not using AC is a reduction in energy usage, my using I still use those appliances, the dishwasher, the dryer, the washing machine, but I use them at different times. So I'm I'm flattening the curve, or at least I'm flattening my curve by shifting their usage outside of the peak hours. James, thank you for this. I thought time of use rates are complicated, but it does sound like utilities are doing everything they can to support a shift towards renewables, balance supply and demand, and do all of this while keeping things simple for the customer. I want to thank you for helping simplify many of these concepts and principles today, James. I want to thank you for joining us today on The Power Perspectives. It's been a real pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. See you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Mm-hmm.